Hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today we're going back to the campaign and talking about a scenario where fleeing can appear to be the only viable option for your players, but also how you can communicate your intent to players while maintaining verisimilitude. Adrift at sea with only their parcel to deliver and worries for company, land came into sight toward the end of the second day. Our trio of adventurers set to rowing with a renewed fervor towards the derelict port, with only an unkempt sign proclaiming a name long faded off and not a soul in sight to greet them. The sun was passing into the west as they tied their worn vessel to the docks and took to exploring. We should stop somewhere for a drink, Pedwar said as they strolled through the swamp town. This monk could use a refill, long overdue. He fiddled with the stopper of his empty cask. The cleric, Skaji, nodded. And maybe some directions. I don't know where we are, but I doubt it to be Soothwater. But no window was alight, and no folk about their evening business. The planks that most of the town was raised in over the swamp were in varied states of decay, and much had been claimed again by wild root. The place gave all signs of desertion long before their coming, and an unease began to set in. Quiet! Did you hear that? Olrun shook his horned head and scanned the darkness and smirked. You're being paranoid again, my friend. Nothing but empty buildings here. Do not doubt me, sorcerer. Woolman reveals much before my eyes. There, down this street. A towering shape amidst the alleys and corners manifested. A twirl of shadow with malevolence in its glowing eyes. It scanned its domain and crept along forgotten paths. Where it walked, no moon or starlight penetrated an opaque void of quiet dread. Reveal yourself, fiend, by the light of the all-seeing god. Skaji brandished his mace and holy symbol, an eye surrounded by cardinal points. The figure turned, and as it did, swept a kind of hand through a tenement a story above them. The force of the blow crumbled the buckling wood to splinters that scattered unseen in the night. It seemed to grow even greater, and in its eyes a hunger for the life within these new arrivals. Olrun hurled a mote of fire at the writhing mass of darkness. It simply pressed on towards them, unfazed. My mistake, the cleric turned to his glaring companions. We should run. Their foe gave chase through its home, and would have had them were it not for a pair of the Dawn Guards surveying the area, an order of knights sworn to a bygone dynasty in fighting a war long lost. But that is a story for another time. With the trick of a sun bomb and a guiding hand, the trio followed this helpful stranger into an empty tavern, only to be met by a crossbow readied and leveled at them. Their momentary savior turned, her sword drawn, and asked, Let's do names. Tell us yours first. I think my players were a bit worried when the last session ended with them lost at sea, 
without any real way to guide themselves to shore, but through some circumstantial sleight of hand, aka DM Fiat, I had already prepared the next few parts of their introductory adventure. I know there's plenty to be said about picking a low-level module and having your players follow along with that for a while, so it may just be a stylistic choice that I like to chain together specific scenes before opening up the options to them. And the campaign does open up, I promise. I don't think I even noticed that habit of mine until I started talking about this particular session where I have these uh, snippets that I want to have the players run through rather than an open sandbox. So the party's boat drifts along the jagged sea northward uh, over to the edge of the Drifting Isles, which was the region of their objective, but without any real idea of where they were. This particular village was a piece of a shattered island village that was separated across the swamp and has been abandoned for nearly a decade at this point in the game. During that time, a Wraith, which is a challenge rating 5 monster in the monster manual, had taken to it as in its abode for the memories of uh, suffering and misery that lingered in that place, claiming it as its own domain. There's a couple things that stick out about throwing such a strong creature at my players, especially at that level. If you don't know anything about how D&D CR or uh, challenge rating math works, the idea is basically that uh, a party of four level one adventurers should be able to handle a CR1 creature. And while that math doesn't necessarily hold up, that's the basic idea. There's plenty of folks who talk about the action economy elsewhere, but one of the big things about 5e is that the more characters that one side has, the more likely they are to win. Again, it doesn't really apply here for a few reasons. First of which, a wraith has damage resistance to non-magical attacks from non-silvered weapons, but an armor class still low enough for level one players to likely hit it. So while they can hit it, they still won't be doing a whole lot of damage. It's able to resist half of their attacks from non-silvered weapons. This ends up being a twofold lesson. To demonstrate that creatures have their own sets of immunities and resistances, much in the same way that the players do. And more importantly, you don't need to stand your ground and fight to win every encounter. Numerically, you could probably fudge a couple things behind the screen, and you can demonstrate the strength of an enemy without needing it to even damage the players. If you want to paint the scene for your players outside of numbers, describe the enemies they face, attacking the landscape around them, or devouring some unnamed NPCs, just to name a few options. Um, and that's what I ended up doing with this shadow that they were fighting, taking its misty shadow hand and running it through the tenements above them, just knocking a bunch of apartment and abandoned buildings to splinters above them, clearly signaling this is a little bit outside of their current wheelhouse. In that same way, you can describe them hitting that creature who has resistances, and this is just universal, it doesn't have to apply specifically to them fighting a shadow or a wraith, um, that the uh, creature seems to like glance the blow and take less damage than they would expect. So when, you know, that uh, 66 fireball gets rolled and the demon seems to shrug off a good chunk of that damage, they understand, oh hey, this creature has resistance to fire damage, I'm going to have to come up with some other kind of solution to the problem. Between the sorcerer casting a spell and a couple hits of those non-silvered weapons, I think the players got the point. It was time to retreat and find some other solution to their problem. I guess, looking back, I still had that other situation covered, though. Because even if they had stayed and fought the NPC that had been watching from a distance, uh, named Andrea Blackblade, still probably would have intervened in some way to aid the group. Not the most intricate way to preserve the illusion of the table, uh, but it worked. They ducked out from the wraith into a bar indicated by their new savior, only to meet the other NPC, a dwarven arbalist named Wart, and she had her crossbow trained at them as soon as they entered. Before I go talking about the Dawn Guard, I figure it's important to also address the idea about 
player expectations um, about not in the same way that uh, players are going to show up at your table and they're going to have an idea of where the game is going to go. Instead, you are expecting what the players are actually going to do and anticipate how they are going to react to a situation. If you do have a group of players um, that you expect will want to just fight whatever situation it is uh, you put in front of them, it's important to recognize that and know that if you do put something that's too tough in front of them, be ready for that scenario where they don't surrender. If you have a group that you think is likely to surrender, also still have a scenario prepared where you know they don't expect them to surrender. One of the big things is you can't always expect your group to follow the path that uh, that you have laid out. Um, you don't. They don't need to necessarily follow that. Uh, I guess that. <laughs> I guess that the the railroad, right? That's the dirty word for it. They don't need to follow that railroad or that path that you've carved out, expecting the story to take place in. You you should wholly expect and endorse that they are going to throw wrenches in your plans, and you'll just be prepared for it. You'll get better again. You'll get better at it as you go on playing Dungeons and Dragons and DMing. But um, you know, just if you have something in mind and you think you know how it's going to go, be prepared for it not to go that particular way. Uh, all right, yes, back to uh, the Dawn Guard. Now, the Dawn Guard started as a player faction, actually, I had for my last campaign. This group of pseudo knights dedicated to protecting the human kingdom that was still around at the time. In the centuries since that campaign and a political coup, now they are more like a force of skirmishers and infiltrators in defiance of a long defeat. Since they're still around, however, they can give the players an idea of the political landscape without needing them to enter it themselves. If they're content to remain unsworn to any lord or noble, that's fine. People who are involved still exist in the world, and you can get a lot out of just simply saying, oh yeah, these guys, they hate the king. Now they know somebody hates the king for some reason, throwing an extra layer on your campaign cake. Ah, uh, that's that's uh, not a good one. I should, yeah, I should not use that one ever again. But regardless, you have these existing factions that the players don't need to be a part of they don't need to be involved in their war they just simply exist there to add flavor and depth and impact to the story and the campaign as it develops after trading names both the npcs and the party figure the best thing to do is get the hells out of this literal ghost town so they check the basement for a way out and find a large cask that leads into a tunnel beneath the swamp after a quick encounter with a singular rust monster and a low-level demon, they find a rowboat to take them further into the swamp with a couple of new allies to serve as their initial guides as they make their own way. These other encounters were, uh, in a way, similar to what I set up from the Wraith from earlier. The rust monster, which is a classic D&D creature from, I think, the oldest editions, ended up wearing down some of the equipment the party had, but definitely within their level range still making for an encounter they wouldn't forget when their weapons started doing less damage. The memory of it literally following them for the next couple sessions until they could get their uh, equipment fixed and repaired. The little maw demon also had some resistances to magical damage, just like the wraith, or the wraith but without resistance to non-silvered and non-magical weapons, which would make the encounter much more difficult for a melee-focused party this early on in their adventuring careers. So one flight from combat led to further flight through a hidden escape hatch, and I hopefully didn't need to signal it to my players by showing giant warning signs saying you need to be a higher level for this content. Because really smart players could come up with some creative solutions to the encounters you have. If they did have some idea of what they wanted to do, for example, if my players had tried luring the Wraith to the other side of town in order to sneak out 
maybe like um, like a horror game where rather than having to fight the creature, they just had to outsmart it. Um, that would entirely bypass the tavern escape they found, and that's totally fine. That goes back to me talking about, you know, be prepared for them to have some other alternative solution to come up with. It may seem like you're pulling something out of your ass, but don't worry, they're not going to notice, it's going to be fine, and you're only going to get better the more you have to pull stuff out of your ass. Oh, God. So, big highlights. There's plenty of other ways you can show your players your intent of an encounter, but don't ever expect them to just surrender or flee from them. You can signal to them the level of danger they're in without having to directly damage or turn it into numbers to compare. And if your players do still engage or come up with a solution that goes haywire, you'll still be fine to rework things to save your players, getting themselves into more danger than they're ready for. Whether that's just some friendly NPCs showing up, or maybe they're imprisoned rather than outright killed, I think it depends on the situation at hand. I'd say it's a bad idea to outright kill characters if they make a wrong decision with the limited information you give them, especially if they're in a situation where they don't have the opportunity to gather more. At that point, it starts to feel like punishment, so probably just best to avoid situations like that, unless maybe you are looking for a more lethal uh, table campaign experience. Alright, I think that's all I've got for now. Hey, thanks for dropping by, giving me a listen. Feel free to leave feedback wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and feel free to even send questions or comments my way at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at dmdcpodcast. Take care and have a great week. Thank you.